Okay, I want to take a reading, it's quite a long reading, um, from Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. And uh, I did say a month ago that I'd be doing um, r- roughly every month a, uh, a talk on Isaiah, themes in Isaiah. So uh, it's on page 675. If you want to read, um, well, you can just listen. Page 675 in the, uh, in the church Bibles, page 675. Now, Jeremiah lived in troubled times, times when it looked like invading countries were on the march. And uh, at the same time, in his own country, there were gross violations of human rights. That's what we talk talk about it today. Um, Rich people getting richer and poor people being ground into the dust. Acts of violence, people getting away with it. Um, uh, a, A dreadful turning away from God from a country that was meant to be dedicated to the living God. And uh, Isaiah is given these prophecies, these foretellings of uh, the state of people's hearts and what God is going to do in the future. And uh, starting at verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply, food, and support, the necessities for living. The whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. In other words, there's going to be a famine. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter. In other words, these people will be removed. The pillars of society will pillar no longer. Uh, They will be removed. I'll make mere lads their princes. Now, that could be an idiom which means childish people become the politicians. Not necessarily seven-year-olds, but you know, um, people who are, who are basically puerile and silly and stupid. Um, I'll make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. And he will protest on that day, saying, I'll not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shouldn't appoint the the ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence. The expressions on their faces bear witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. And uh, there's a reference to the sinful city of Sodom, uh, which was shameless in their sexual sins and also in their violence. And they indeed tried to uh, uh, physically attack, molest and rape uh, what, what appeared, what they thought were appeared to be to be men, but actually was angels of the Lord, and uh, the city of Sodom was shameless. And, and and God is saying to the people of Jerusalem, "You are shameless in sinning against me. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves." 
Verse 10, say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them, for what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, the oppressors are children and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the peoples. Now, um, I'm having a difficulty actually reading um, this under this light. Um, Okay. It's you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor, in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts? The Lord said... Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, in other words, a stench. Instead of the belt, a rope. And instead of a well-set hair, boldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes and let it be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame, flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade and by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Now it's a long reading but actually uh, it is really all part of the same prophecy. Two contrasting uh, parts of that prophecy. Uh, And uh, I'm now going to ask the Lord to to bless us as we look into uh, this message. So let's now pray. Oh, Father in heaven, the lifeline for men and women down the ages has always been the word of God. Lord, when we've strayed, when we've, when we've gone away into the darkness, when we've been in the darkness, Lord, the thing that has enabled us to come into salvation 
always was the word of God. The thing that brings us back is always the word of God. The message that you have delivered through your prophets and the apostles. And we pray, Lord, that tonight you may grant that from this long passage, Lord, you you will grant us things that will uh, help us, rebuke us, uh, inspire us and encourage us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things I did say, one of the most of the two previous talks I've given is, is that Isaiah contains an amazing amount of insights into the gospel and indeed lays the foundation for many of the, uh, the gospel teachings in the New Testament. Now, here in this passage, which is chapter 3 and chapter 4, we have firstly this rather long passage about the punishment that was becoming upon the society of Israel, followed by a shorter but wonderful passage talking about the glorious times of the Messiah. The word Messiah means the anointed one. And the Jews in the time before Jesus and indeed Jewish people today still reverence and talk about the coming one, the Messiah, who uh, indeed uh, Jewish people reverence, although those who haven't yet received Jesus as their Messiah, of course, uh, are, st- are still thinking he's, he's yet to come. But Isaiah is given this, 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 this wonderful vision. And it's kind of like a mountain range. People often said this about prophecies, that if you've ever been out into, you know, even the Lake District, uh, but other places with the mountain ranges, you can see one mountain that's, in the, in, you know, that's nearest to you, and it looks, you know, it looks really big. And in the far distance, they're kind of, they don't look much bigger because they are in the far distance in the mountain range. They are even bigger and, and, and wonderful um, often. Now the thing is this. Isaiah presents to us in this passage a, a mountain range of prophecy. The first one is like a, vol- a, volcanic, a volcano. Like Mount Etna, which uh, some of us here have uh, struggled up the first few thousand feet of it. It's about 10,000 feet high, but we've struggled up the first few, two or three thousand feet of it. And when you're going up Mount Etna and looking at Mount Etna, it is very, very, uh, the area we were going through is literally just solidified lava with very little uh, growth on it. Um, because we were going recently over an area that had recently been covered by fresh lava. In fact, of course, further down the slope, it's wonderfully fertile. And uh, uh, lava, uh, when it crumbles away, is a tremendous, uh, tremendous growth uh, um, um, substance for, for vegetation but when you're actually on it climbing up the, the lava it really and looking up at the, the, at the peak it really does look a desolate wasteland when we have a chapter talking about what was going to happen to Jerusalem when we look at the, 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 the slopes of retribution and of judgment and condemnation it's a pretty devastatingly awful thing I mean, uh, it may be that someone's listening online or is in the church that themselves has no peace with God. And all you see when it comes to the future is a great volcano of, of wrath of God waiting to burst. But even before it's burst, even before you get to the day of judgment and this tremendous uh, fiery uh, uh, shower that's going to fall upon people uh, of the wrath of God... Though you haven't got there yet, you are, you're climbing up these horrible, desolate slopes of guilt and fear. And you don't know what your life is about and you have no peace with God. 
Well, here's the wonderful thing. This passage in Isaiah 3 and chapter 4 shows us the horror of judgment, but then goes on to talk about the wonders of God's love and grace to any sinner who is prepared to receive Jesus Christ into their life, to receive the Messiah, to come, become part of the kingdom of the Messiah. I mean, I, I, to all, I gave the, the title to this, uh, The Kingdom of the Glorious Branch, but Retribution for the Wicked. And uh, basically, um, that, that's really what, what the areas I'm going to look at. Now, I want to point out firstly that uh, the message uh, in chapter 3 of God's judgment upon unrighteous people is true of societies within history. Um, Paul says in Romans, uh, when he's talking in Romans 1 and 2 about um, the wrath of God, he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, Paul is saying not only on the last day, when it comes to you know the end of the world, is there going to be is there wrath being poured out? But actually, within history itself and within the life of men and women, God's wrath is being revealed. Why? Because God simply tells us that um, that we are going to actually we we actually uh, are, are being given up by God. And when there's a society that actually gives up God and doesn't want God any longer in their knowledge, God gives them up and allows the natural consequences of giving up God to actually happen. And societies that refuse to have God always fail. A society which is based upon the defiance of God and his law must fail. I mean, the supreme example of this, of course, is Hitler's Germany. 1933, when he took over, Germany was at the peak of his power. Well, probably a year or two later, was at the peak of his power. But during that time, he proclaimed that the Third Reich, in other words, his government, would last for a thousand years. His empire that he was going to build, it was going to last a thousand years. It lasted twelve. During that time, of course, his evil plans and purposes had some fruition. The murder of millions of people, millions of Jewish people, the uh, attempt at conquest for the world. But in the end, it failed. And in the end, all of the societies of the world, which based their society upon the completely, complete ignoring of God, basically failed. The Roman Empire, which was probably the most successful of the world, world empires, it came to an end. After about 500 years, there was a thousand years of Roman civilization, but there was 500 years of empire building. It failed. The truth is that when societies give up God, the results are always the same. The politicians and leaders fight for power at some point. Wars result, famines, plagues, economic dislocation. It happens. You go back in every society, in China or India or, or Africa or wherever, whether it's on a small scale or a large scale, those who live without God, their civilization simply break up. The materialism that happens in many civilizations, which is true in our civilization, eventually it's going to come to an end, crashing down. If Christ doesn't come before then. 
We see in the, the book of Isaiah a description of uh, Jewish society in those days. It included uh, not only turning away from God to, to serve I- idols, but particularly chapter 3 concentrates not so much on idolatry, uh, or for that matter, sexual misbehavior, which of course is in other parts of the Bible and in other parts of I- I- Isaiah, but concentrates on basically um, the materialism of, of uh, much of the population. People were chasing money, and they didn't care who they, who they actually, uh, uh, how, how badly they treated people. We, we read uh, in the passage, and do, you're welcome, obviously, to read it in detail again later, but it talks about the poor being ground down by the rich. It talks about, very similar to today, actually, about the materialism of the women, of, of, of the rich women, that is, of Jerusalem and, and uh, of Judah. It gives us a long list of the accessories that you might find, many of them we might find in an accessory shop today for women. Now, the Bible does not condemn the use of jewelry and adornments. Indeed, it, it is, it's written into many of the stories in the Bible, and it's not, there's no disapproval by Jesus when he talks about a woman who, who loses a coin, which was almost certainly one of the coins that she wore around her head as a kind of a, uh, I'm not sure what you call it, headband, uh, which was part of her dowry from when she was married. And indeed, uh, the Lord talks about his people as being, you know, like ornaments and, and so on. So there's, no, there's nothing wrong in themselves with uh, wearing a, a, a necklace or what have you uh, for a woman to do this. But what is clear from God's condemnation, this great long list in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 3, of these things, the, the floweries, the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. This is what many women thought was the purpose of their lives, to adorn themselves. To adorn themselves outwardly rather than to actually have the beauty of the heart which God was looking for. And the result is that ultimately there was going to come upon Jerusalem, that particular culture, a tremendous judgment eventually and a tremendous uh, desolation upon those women such that there will be so few men left for them to marry that, that one woman would band together with his six other women and say, look, you know, the seven of us will marry you, you know, the bloke, they find a bloke and say, seven of us will marry you and you don't even have to look after us, we'll look after ourselves, but please marry us because there's no one else to marry. And these same women will be afflicted with all of the ills that we're, we're, we're told about also. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. And instead of the belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, boldness, Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Now, this process, which uh, is uh, talked about in Isaiah, is the process of what is called retribution. It says in Isaiah 3, verse 13, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge his people. And uh, he's already said that uh, in verse 10, tell the righteous it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out 
shall be done to him. Now, retribution means when you do something, there's a comeback from God. When you do something good, good will result. When you do something bad, there will be a result. God will punish. And the punishment will fit the crime. God is not unjust. He's not going to overly punish someone. He's going to give them exactly what they deserve. Now, look, this applies on the human level today. There is going to be a coming judgment. But even in our own lives today, we find the same principles at work. We break God's laws, and then we wonder why we don't have a perfectly happy life when we think we should have. Uh, I remember reading Elvis Presley once said, he was asked by a, a, a journalist, you know, uh, you must be the, one of the happiest guys in the world. And, and he said, happiness? I'm the loneliest person you, you've ever, ever met. He was unhappy and frustrated. And we read now just revelations coming out from, from, uh, from uh, people that knew him um, when he, in, in the 60s and 70s that uh, he spent most of his time chasing 14-year-old girls. Did he find happiness in his marriage? No, he didn't. Did he find happiness in anything? No, he didn't. Did he find uh, uh, any any joy in all of these silly relationships he had with 14-year-old girls and immoral relationships, some of them? And no. Why haven't you got a happy life, uh, Elvis? Ed. Fred. John. If you're breaking God's laws, how can you have a truly happy life of peace and love? The thing is that human beings breaking God's laws have frustration in their lives. Emptiness, guilt and fear when thinking about coming before a holy God. I I use this um, example in the open air. In fact, I've used it many times. But... uh, I, I had a, 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 a shirt that I used to use for preaching, um, and I, I spilt curry on it. <laughs> you know. And then, instead of doing what was necessary there and then to deal with that, I, well, I didn't even realize I'd spilt on it. So it, it kind of got processed by, by the washing machine and other things. And so it was an indelible stain on this shirt, my favorite preaching shirt, you might say. <laughs> An indelible stain. It was only a little one. I noticed it. Probably other people wouldn't even notice it, but I could see it. But we have our souls. You have your soul. And every day, your soul is being stained, and my soul is being stained, not by one spot, which most people can't see, but by hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, both things we say, things we do, and also the loads of things going through our mind that are wrong in the sight of God. By the end of the week, we're just covered in filth. By the end of a month, it's just unbelievable. By the end of a lifetime, we must be utterly obnoxious. The soul of man must be utterly obnoxious in the sight of a holy God. And yet, of course, this is the wonderful truth that the Bible says. Jesus came into this world to wash away our filth. And we'll see that is later a promise in the passage. But anyway, the thing is this. This principle of retribution. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out 
shall be done to him. That's Isaiah 3 verse 11. The, the New Testament says, the times of, of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice, Acts chapter 17 verse 13 is not the knell of doom. It's the bell of freedom. Because what Paul is saying is, this day is coming, but you can do something. You can change your mind. You can repent. Your death is going to happen. My death is going to happen. Christ is going to come one day. He will judge the world. But we have this wonderful, wonderful promise of God. Change your mind. Trust in Christ. And receive the benefits of what he has done. I want to finish, uh, you know, basically my talk on looking at these wonderful things that Christ has promised. What the Messiah has promised to his people. Now, uh, to do this, of course, I, would, I do want to look at that passage in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse, verse uh, 2 onwards. And you'll notice it starts off with this, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. What does that mean? Now, firstly, that day is mentioned seven times in the section that I've read through. But I counted up, used the concordance, the online concordance, and I counted that, that expression, that day, in that day, occurs 40 times in the first 31 chapters of Isaiah, in that day. Now, when Isaiah is talking about that day, he's talking about in that day of the Messiah. From the the point when the Messiah comes, when Jesus came into this world, onwards. So that day includes this day in which we're living. This day, God's retribution is being carried on. Until finally the great day of judgment arrives when that, the whole judging of the world will be consummated and, and the, whole, the, the, the wicked will be punished and excluded from, uh, from the presence of God forever. But also in this day is the day when we may trust in Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come, in to, I didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world. Jesus' motivation in coming to this, into this world as a man was to actually save the world. When he comes again as the glorified Son of God, he will come and indeed he will then uh, be, be uh, uh, fulfilling his, his function as the judge, just of all, judge of all things and, and, and the just judge. And then indeed he will, he will separate uh, those who, who trust him and follow him and uh, live a, a life following him from those who are living a life of darkness. Now, these are the days of the Messiah we're talking about. In that day, the branch of the Lord. Now here, I mean, here is a a kind of, bit of an eccentric expression really in English. What does it mean, the branch of the Lord? What is the branch of the Lord? Well, in the Hebrew, it actually talks about, the literal Hebrew is the sprouting of the Lord. What does it mean? Well, as a, a person that goes over to Sicily regularly, I see this phenomenon all the time, uh, especially as I've cut down about 15 largish uh, olive trees over the past five years, uh, and I've pruned loads, but I've actually cut down completely, 
15 large olive trees. And the thing is this, the olive trees have a stump that wide, you know, I mean, quite, quite wide. And you use a great big chainsaw to, to, to chop it down. Uh, well, not to chop it down, but to saw it down. And, uh, you know, a year later, what do you see? Coming from this dead, what you think is a dead stump, is a very small sprout. And as the years go on, that sprout becomes a, a sapling from a, what appears to be a dead stump. And if you wait for enough years, another 20 years, it will be much bigger than the original tree. Now, that's what it means when it says this branch. Um, in fact, it's defined uh, later on in Isaiah 11 verse 1, which you, if you're quick and nimble, you can go to it, but I'm not going to um, uh, give you much time, because it says there, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. And so the picture we have in, in the other places in Isaiah, and actually Jeremiah and, um, and Zechariah, is of what appears to be something that's dead and finished, but actually it's just the beginning of something more great, more vital, more wonderful than actually was originally in the root. David himself was a great king, but is nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ, his later descendant. And uh, God is predicting a tremendous devastation upon Jerusalem uh, that is going to be happening Seven, uh, uh, in the 7th century before Christ and the 6th century as well before Christ there were uh, two, two separate devastations on Jerusalem but the thing is this that this is just the beginning what appears to be a dead stump actually is the beginning of the times of the Messiah when the Messiah eventually will come in Jesus Christ and as I said to finish I want to look at uh, this, uh, this wonderful a person that is called the branch of the Lord. Now notice it says in verse 2, that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Beautiful and glorious. The Messiah is beautiful and glorious. When Jesus Christ came, he was despised and rejected of men. He was considered just to be, another way we could say, just a stump cut off in the prime of his life crucified but actually his whole life was beautiful and glorious but not perceived by the unbelieving world and of course he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and now indeed is the reigning one over the whole universe the whole universe is under his power and control at this very moment my hands are in his in his hands your breath is actually maintained in existence by the glorious Son of God. But he is beautiful not merely because he's powerful, although that is a wonderful quality, but he's beautiful because he's filled with the most wonderful love, perfect love that we can imagine. Often in the open air in, in Stratford, I describe Jesus' relationship with prostitutes and thieves and, and all kinds of, of simple, ignorant people with all kinds of ugliness and horrible things in their life and also those who are suffering great, uh, great illnesses. But with them all, Jesus showed in those days, as a man, this wonderful personal compassion and kindness to them. To the leper, he was stirred up with compassion. This man was suffering and said, Lord, if you will, if you, will you can heal me. And Jesus, just filling, filled up with a compassion for the man, reached out and touched him. 
broke a Jewish law, showed his love for a man who was infected with what in those days was considered to be a disease almost as bad as death itself. And Jesus just, just touched him. And this same Jesus is with us tonight. And those of us who are Christians, I want you to actually think about this. Jesus has reached out to your soul and he touched you. I don't know when it was, in all your cases. You might have been children, you might have been teenagers, you might have been in your 20s or 30s or 40s. But if you've received Christ, you have had a personal, a personal meeting and a touch from Christ to heal you. And he has become beautiful and glorious in your sight. Peter says, unto you that believe he is precious. You know, the stone the builders rejected considered nothing. But to you who believe he is precious, he's wonderful. Well, this wonderful and glorious Messiah, which is talked about in Isaiah uh, um, 34, in that day the branch for the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Now, let's note this. The people of Israel had, had been told in chapter 3 of their wickedness and of their, of their filth. In particular, what uh, would have been a particularly um, objectionable expression to the, uh, uh, to, 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 to the females in Jerusalem was this picture that they were basically going to be uh, uh, in a stench uh, in the future as a punishment. But they didn't realize the problem, the stench had already started in their own hearts. They were unholy. They did not, they did not honor the Lord. They'd actually uh, turned against him. They despised him. And uh, here we have it said that in chapter 4, that uh, in, in verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over his assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Now I want us to notice that we have this promise that God takes the filth of the world, you and me, people who've sinned, people who've failed, people who have, have nothing in ourselves that is, that is, uh, that is good before God, and he washes it away and burns it and purges it away. How does that happen? It happens through the blood of Christ. If God is, is convincing you tonight, I am a filthy sinner. I have broken his laws. I am guilty and I know I'm on my way to a, an eternity of destruction away from him. And if you want to be saved from that, all you have to do is to trust in Christ. And specifically trust in his death and thank him that he died for you to cleanse away the filth, all of the filth of your life, that you might be holy. And to be holy means set apart for God, perfect before God, blameless, holy before God. You see, those who now are members of Zion, the old Zion, the old Jerusalem, in this picture has been swept away by devastation. But those who are left, who believe in the Messiah, who are part of the Messiah's uh, kingdom, they are holy, and they are made holy through the blood of Christ. 
And so, you, my friend, whatever country you are in, if you're listening online, you, at this moment, can actually become part of that kingdom. And by this purging and cleansing of the blood of Christ, have everything completely removed uh, of guilt that's in your life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem by its midst, from its midst. The bloodstains, of course, were the most terrible sins of murder that happened. Even those sins can be cleansed and can be forgiven through this wonderful Messiah. But it's also implicit in what's being said here that God desires not just to save us from hell and give us a clean conscience. He wants us to live a clean life. Uh, you know, too often people uh, say they become Christians. They say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. And then they go out and they live the same kind of life they'd always lived. But that is not God's purpose for you or me. God wants us to live a different life, a different quality of life, a life like Jesus, being holy. And uh, we're told that there are various things that will aid this life of holiness, this life of following Christ. And this is the, uh, my final point. It says, The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. Booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storms and rain. Now here are the promises for those who want to come to Christ and would like to live the Christian life. Here are some of the things that are promised. Firstly, you will have the real presence of God in your life every day. Now the people of Israel, when they escaped from the, the slavery in Egypt and they, they went through the wilderness... God gave them this amazing sign, this towering, flaming fire at night that they could see was always with them. And during the day, because you can't really see the fire so much during the day, there was a, a massive cloud that was also f following them, leading them. Now, that was a symbol of the fact that God was with them. Wherever they went, there it was, guiding them and helping them. Now, Every believer that ever comes to Christ is promised the presence of Christ and indeed the presence of the Father in their life and the Holy Spirit's guidance. And we have, we have in our lives, we can, we can say, there are many of our hymns that, that actually allude to this image that you may pick up actually in future weeks if you, if you can remember this passage of this, this guidance and protection and love in knowing the presence of God. Not being afraid of the presence of God, but rather delighting in the fact he is with us all of the time. I mean, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. When I was a teenager at university, an older teenager, 19, I remember a guy gave me a sticker with a simple thing that said, Jesus loves you, you know, and I, I used to think I was a bit, you know, a bit crude <laughs> to give out those stickers. But actually, um, 
it is wonderful to know that Jesus loves you. And it's also even more wonderful to know that Jesus that loves you is not way, way, millions of miles away that we're going to see one day. And we'll find out, oh yes, thank you Lord for loving me from a distance. But Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. And is with us as a wife or a husband is with their partner. Even more so, because even a husband and wife can't be together all the time. But we have the presence of Christ with us at all times. And uh, not only, um, of course, is he with us, but he's also leading us as this cloud by day and smoke by night. Sorry, um, cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. But also he guides us. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this bar- barren land. And now that, that, I think, was a, a reference in that hymn to, to this, this fact. So we have problems. God can guide us through them. Whether they be family problems, work problems, problems about uh, whatever. The Lord can guide us. As a church, we're, we constantly face problems and questions about how we're, what we're going to do in the future and so on. God can and does guide us as we trust him. He is also there for our defense. There will be a booth for shade from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. He defends us from the storms of life. He is our refuge. He's our shelter. He is the one who gives us confidence as we face each day. Now may the Lord bless uh, some of these themes to you. I've, I've said when I started this series, I'm not going to be going through it verse by verse. Otherwise, I, w- I would actually take about 23 years to get through the whole of Isaiah. Um, but what I'm doing is, uh, is suggesting themes which you yourself also can follow up as you read through those chapters. So let me now just pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you that um, the prediction of Jesus, our Messiah, our anointed one, our anointed leader, uh, are so uh, prolific throughout the Old Testament. And we thank you that all of these predictions were wonderfully fulfilled in this mystery of Jesus of Nazareth, who was unknown and yet knew everybody, who was despised and yet was infinitely majestic and glorious and the beauty of 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 uh, the godhead lay upon him we thank you that uh, we have received him by faith and we thank you lord that we may live our lives and live a holy life with your protection and help each day uh, lord we do pray that anybody uh, online who's listening anybody who's in the church who doesn't have a trust in this Messiah, this wonderful Savior. May indeed, Lord, you will create faith in them, help them as they seek to come to you. And we pray that you will bless us in this following week. In Jesus' name, amen.